For the first live report from the Cape, let's go immediately to NBC's Roy Neal at Cape Canaveral, Florida. I am just listening to the voice of Colonel John Powers in Mercury Control, who has just advised us that as of this moment, we can report to you live and direct from this vantage point at Cape Canaveral. That's pad 14. Mercury Atlas 6 is ready for launching. John Glenn is inside the spacecraft. The countdown at this moment is T-minus 85 minutes. This was John Glenn earlier this morning at breakfast. They awakened him at 2.20. He shaved and showered, and for breakfast, we understand that he enjoyed such things as scrambled eggs, two of them, a filet, fruit juice, orange juice, toast, jelly, and postum. This was followed by a physical examination, and finally, he began to suit up in the pressure suit. John Glenn was an American aviator, engineer, astronaut, and United States Senator from Ohio. In 1962, he became the first American to orbit the Earth, circling three times. Before joining NASA, he was a distinguished fighter pilot in both World War II and Korea, with six distinguished flying crosses and 18 clusters to the Air Medal. And for the hour, we're going to celebrate the life of John Glenn Glenn was one of the Mercury 7 group of military test pilots selected in 1959 by NASA to become America's first astronauts. On February 20, 1962, he flew the Friendship 7 mission and became the first American again to orbit the Earth and the fifth in space. He received the Congressional Space Medal of Honor in 1978, was inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1990, and was the last surviving member of the Mercury 7. After he resigned from NASA in 1964 and retired from the Marine Corps in 1965, Glenn planned to run for a U.S. Senate seat from Ohio. A member of the Democrat Party, he first won election to the Senate in 1974, where he served through January 3, 1999. In 1998, while still a sitting senator, he became the oldest person to fly in space and the only one to fly in both the Mercury and Space Shuttle programs as a crew member of the Discovery Space Shuttle. He was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012. This man led many people's lives. That's how big a life it was. After graduating from New Concord High School in 1939, he studied engineering at Muskingum College. He earned a private pilot license for credit in a physics course in 1941. Glenn did not complete his senior year in residence or take a proficiency exam, both requirements of the school for the Bachelor of Science degree. The school granted Glenn his degree in 1962 after his Mercury space flight. You think? On April 6, 1943, Glenn married his high school sweetheart, Anna Margaret Kester. Both Glenn and his wife attended college together, where he was a member of the Stag Club fraternity. Together, the two had two children, John David and Carolyn Ann, and two grandchildren. They remained married for 73 years until his death. Here's John's wife, Ann, talking about meeting John Glenn when she was just two years old. John and I have known each other for... Uh, forever and ever, you might say. Which is one, well, we've enjoyed each other. Uh, after Dad graduated from Ohio State Dental School, they wanted to move back to New Concord. And his mother and Dad moved over there at the same time, and 
the Glens and the Casters became very, very good friends. So I've known John since we were two years old. <laughs> and when we were graduating from high school, we sort of thought, oh, let's elope. And our families, both couples, said, you're going to college. I still have my engagement ring, which is John's always wanted to buy me a larger ring. I said, honey, that thing cost $125, and that was a lot of money then. I don't, I don't need a larger ring. Three, three days after he had received his wings and he was home, we were married. And that was at the beginning of World War II. And by the way, this was a constant in John Glenn's life, his wife, his bride. And now we want to get into John Glenn's life as the aviator. You got a little backstory on his personal life. Before he was an astronaut, Glenn again earned all of those flying crosses as a United States Marine Corps aviator in World War II and the Korean conflict as a naval test pilot. In this presentation recorded in 2012, John Glenn discusses his own career and the defining moments in his life as an aviator at the National Air and Space Museum, itself a national treasure. If you have not been, uh, you have missed one of the great, great days in your life. Get to the National Air and Space Museum if you've never been and bring your family. Here, John Glenn talks about how he first got his private pilot's license and then joined the Marine Corps. I saw on the bulletin board one day a a thing that you could get your private pilot's license uh, at government expense and uh, and they would pay all the bills for it and you get your private pilot's license. Well, I thought that was too good to miss. And so I went in and signed up for that. And so early in 1941, I had my private pilot's license. And then in uh, December 41, of course, was Pearl Harbor. And I felt it was my duty then to leave and, and go into military training, which I did. And uh, Annie and I had planned to be married after we were out of college, and we had to uh, uh, postpone that, of course, while I was in flight training. But uh, it was it was that that led me into uh, uh, into flight training, and I was uh, it was called the V5 program back then, Naval Aviation Cadet Program. And you went directly into uh, to flight training, and uh, about halfway through training or through advanced training, if you wanted to, you could request your uh, your commission be granted in not in the Navy, which you were was training you at that time, but uh, that you get your commission in the Marine Corps, and I applied for that. I wanted to be in the Marine Corps. And when we come back, more on the life of John Glenn. We celebrated here today for an hour, and right now we're focused on the aviator. This is our American Stories. This perhaps was to be the big morning. Before He had gone through postponements patiently. He's been waiting, training here at Cape Canaveral. While all of us have been waiting patiently, we, the nation, standing by for this attempt to put the first American in orbit. And as you can see, Mr. Glenn this morning is in good condition, happy condition. A gold condition is the way they describe the crew. This was the scene as he left Hangar S, an event that took place at 5.02 in the morning, Eastern Time, Cape Canaveral Time ready to go to the launch pad. Well, here's Colonel John Powers now with an announcement. We are at 
T-minus 82 minutes and counting at this time. Astronaut John Glenn is in the cockpit of the Friendship 7 spacecraft. This is Our American Stories, and the life of John Glenn is what we're focused on for the hour here, celebrating his life and a speech he gave at the National Air and Space Museum back in 2012. That's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. You don't need to hear from us or journalists or experts. Now, John Glenn is still with us. You can go to YouTube and you can listen to him and look at him. And that's really him talking. And wherever we can and whenever we can, we want to hear the stories from the storytellers themselves. Let's get out of the way and bring you back to Northern Virginia and John Glenn's talk. He wanted to be a fighter pilot, but he didn't get his wings by flying the kind of plane you might suspect. I had it in mind I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Now you have to remember back in those days there were not cell phones and easy communication back and forth and about and when we were halfway through advance and I had been selected to go in the Marine Corps, the rumor went around that the Marine Corps was going to get P-38s. Now the P-38 was uh, one of the finest airplanes that came out in the early part of World War II and uh, was one of the best fighters. And that uh, the rumor was that those who had uh, twin engine experience in training we're going to be able to uh, uh, get P-38s and fly fighters after that. But Tom Miller and I wanted to be in fighters and we thought we needed to get twin engine experience and the only twin engine was the flying, the old PBY flying boat. And so in advanced training, although I sort of hate to admit it to this day, but uh, we went through our advanced training, landing and doing all the things you do in a PBY and training and graduated with that in our background was transferred to Cherry Point, North Carolina, expecting to see my big P-38 sitting on the line. And, of course, the Marine Corps had never heard of p 38 <laughs> Around this time, John Glenn was assigned to the West Coast and being trained in a transport squadron. Here, Glenn tells the story of how he and his friend Tom Miller managed to get themselves transferred to a fighter squadron. Well, Tom and I, uh, being brand new Marines, uh, we weren't, I guess we were a little bit low on, on how you do things at that time and the channels you need to go through. Uh, we went over to uh, the other side of the field where this Marine fighter squadron was and talked to the people over there and the, the uh, skipper over there whose name was Pete Haynes. And uh, we talked to him and uh, that we'd like to get transferred. And he said, well, he needed a couple of additional pilots and if we could get transferred, well, that would be fine. So we went back over and, and to our own side of the field and we were called, about a few hours later, we were called into the group commanding officer, a colonel, and uh, it was like something out of a movie. He stood us in front of his desk at attention, and he got up and walked around chewing us out like you never got in your life for bypassing channels and trying to get transferred out of his outfit without him knowing about it. But a couple of days later, the, uh, <clears throat> the transfer did come through, and uh, so we were in this fighter squadron that then flying F-4Fs, got transferred to uh, El Centro, California for our, final, for our final training. But the final training was to be in the F4U, the Corsair, which was to replace the F4Fs. So imagine this. Young John Glenn and his pal are doing everything in their power to buck command, buck orders, so they can get into the fight with the coolest planes ever made. And what a generation that was. I mean, you're, you're hoping and knowing, by the way, that we have young men like that right now, too. I just want to let you know, when people say that was the greatest generation, meet some of our guys today 
who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, look in their eye and you will know they're the greatest generation too. But back to the story. Then John Glenn would cross paths with a legendary aviator, Charles Lindbergh. Now, Lindbergh had been hired by, I think it was United Aircraft at that time, to uh, uh, give them some advice on some of the, the things that they were working on, and one of them was the Corsair. And so he, uh, uh, he had flown the airplane, and when they got the improved version of it, uh, he flew around to different squadrons all over the country, uh, demonstrating it and, and uh, pointing out how the improvements had been made and what a much better airplane it was now. Uh, our squadron in El Centro was one of the ones that he came to. And uh, so this was an F4U-1D, as it was called, had a big bubble canopy on it that was much improved. Uh, some of the aerodynamics of the uneven stall had been corrected, had a raised tail wheel and some things like that, made it a much better, uh, a much better airplane. Uh, when he came there, uh, Tom Miller and I, we uh, once again, I guess, not sort of bypassing the uh, normal procedures, uh, we went down to the flight line where he was with his airplane to meet him and did, met him and talked to him a little bit and asked if we could fly his airplane, which he, he was happy to uh, have people fly in this new version. And so we, uh, Tom and I, both got to fly, uh, fly that airplane at that time. Uh, we didn't know it, but late, we would see him later on in the war overseas when uh, he was making an overseas tour and stopped at our squadron there and flew a couple of combat missions with us overseas. John Glenn's fighter squadron was then deployed into action in World War II. Here, John talks about his deployment in a banana boat heading for Hawaii. We headed to war in a converted banana boat. <laughs> true, true story. Uh, the USS Santa Monica, prior to the war, had been plying up and down the, uh, the Pacific, bringing bananas up. And they had these big holds that were uh, huge holds where they used to put the bananas and uh, when the war broke out, they converted that boat so they put decks in there and put bunks in there. Uh, and that's what we went overseas on to, to, from San Francisco to Hawaii, not on out further than that. But uh, it was quite a, quite a ship. I think I uh, took my blanket up on deck the first night and stayed there and didn't, I don't think I slept down below decks on all the trip out to Hawaii, which was several days, a number of days, of course. John and his squadron were on a mission to retake the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. Here he talks about his first flight as a fighter pilot, a flight one of his fellow airmen wouldn't return from. The mission we were given was to, as I mentioned, was to keep them knocked down. And uh, they had anti-aircraft fire to spare. And I don't think we ever flew a single mission. We didn't see uh, quite a lot of anti-aircraft fire. Uh, that came home on the very first flight we ever went on. Monty Goodman was one of my closest friends was my wingman. We had trained together, flown together a lot. And on the very first flight, and uh, out after you make a, a, a pass across the island and make your attack, they, uh, you then pull up and go out to a rendezvous point before you head back home again to make sure everybody's there. Well, Monty didn't show up. And all we ever found of him was a, uh, an oil slick in the water back about a mile off the island. So uh, war making got to be very, very personal from that, uh, that point on. Uh, it's very difficult to write letters to, as many of you know, I'm sure, to write letters to next of kin and get those personal effects assembled to send back, and that happened on the very first mission we ever had out there. So he knew the consequence of war immediately. First time up. It was the last time up for one of his fellow crewmen, or airmen, that is. 
John Glenn was then called back to train with a new fleet of aircraft as a test pilot. They called us test pilots, but we had not been through test pilot training. And what they wanted to do was take some people recently back from combat. And uh, they had a whole bunch, a stable of new prop airplanes that were just being prepared for combat. And they wanted to put the service life of the airplane on just as fast as they possibly could. So you were scheduled right around the clock. They had flights scheduled day and night right around the clock, and you had an eight-hour shift. And if your airplane was in commission, you'd be scheduled for two, three, or three-and-a-half-hour flights during that eight-hour period. At the end of my three-months assignment at Patuxent, I was scheduled to go back to a squadron at Cherry Point, North Carolina, uh, to train, and this would be training for going to the invasion of, of Japan. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from John Glenn celebrating his life in his own words. This talk in 2012 at the National Air and Space Museum, a place every American should visit if and when they go to Washington, D.C. This is Our American Stories. More on the life of John Glenn after these messages. T-minus one minute and counting. All systems are reported in a go condition. John Glenn reports he is ready. This is Mercury Control. If he's ready, so are we. We'll stand by, even as you, watching the picture, seeing what transpires. There's no need for further words or description here. This event will tell its own story. The story of the U.S. attempt to put American John Glenn in orbit. milestones in human progress that mark recorded history. In my judgment, this nation's orbital pioneering in space is of such historic stature, representing as it does a vast advancement that will profoundly influence the progress of all mankind. It signals also a call for alertness to our national opportunities and responsibilities. It requires physical and moral stamina to equal the stresses of these times and a willingness to meet the dangers and the challenges of the future. John Glenn throughout his life has eloquently portrayed these great qualities and is an inspiration to all Americans. 
This is Our American Stories, the life of John Glenn for the hour. And this part of our hour is focused on the aviator. And that is that part of his life when he was flying combat missions for this country uh, in the beginning as a U.S. Marine Corps pilot. And by the way, back then, those kind of missions, as dangerous the type of combat as you could face, all volunteer, and the guys were all cut into the head of the line to do this. By the way, when we did the hour on Jimmy Stewart, we learned a lot about Jimmy Stewart's character because he wanted to be up in the air fighting too. And by the way, he had won an Oscar. And he said, no, no more acting, time to fight. And I want a real job. I don't want to run around and raise money for the United States government. It was the character and nature of these guys. So John was then assigned to flight patrol over China. Here he talks about this period of his life and how he was sacrificing some very important family time back home. We would fly a pattern across that part of China every day, a big grid pattern, to look for bridges that had been blown up or road breaks or anything like that. And uh, actually there were very few of those, but we, we carried a full load of ammunition and bombs and so on, but never had to use them there. So uh, it was a, a, a period, though, a very unsettling period in the Marine Corps, just post-war. And it was almost, uh, by the time I got back from overseas, it was almost two years later in what was supposed to be a very short uh, period of time. Uh, Annie and I had been married just after I got out of uh, uh, flight training and got my wings. And uh, our first, our, our daughter was born when I was uh, overseas on that China trip, as a matter of fact. So uh, uh, Annie had some problems, some post-birth problems, and uh, I, I went back on emergency leave for a short period of time, saw our daughter, and then the next time I saw her, she was a, a little toddler. So you put up with some uh, family situations there uh, with separations that were one of the bad parts of the whole thing. Indeed, and that's still the case today with our men and women in uniform, the sacrifices they make for us. John Glenn was then sent to Texas for more training. That was at around the time that the Air Force began to pique his interest. When I came back from that, though, I went into uh, uh, the training command at uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. And I was in the instructor's advanced training unit. The Air Force had a very similar instructor's training unit at their field out at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona, just east of, uh, of Phoenix. I thought then that, the, that I would like to see what, how they trained their instructors and compare it with how we trained our instructors. And so I applied for this to be done. Here we go again. <laughs> the good part for me was that uh, while at Corpus Christi all of our training was being done in prop planes, at Williams Air Force Base they were training in jets. And uh, so it was a, uh, a trip out there to not only check training methods, but I got checked out in the, the P-80, the old shooting star, which was the first of the uh, airplanes that was really manufactured and put into the Air Force in, in, uh, in big numbers. John wanted to keep flying jets. And by the way, who wouldn't? But he was then sent on to complete amphibious warfare training before he was then sent to the Korean War. It was a, a time period where I had advanced then from props to jets and wanted to stay in jets as much as I, I possibly could. When I left there, I was sent to a Quantico to the Amphibious Warfare School junior course. And that was uh, something in the Marine Corps that's part of this air ground team concept, that you have officers and you're, you're 
people are in schools together and study what the other uh, supporting arm is. And uh, so I was in the amphibious warfare school, then was uh, kept there on the staff after that for a period of time. And then uh, finally went to Korea at the end of that, uh, at the end of that session at Quantico. Here's John Glenn talking about the various times he and his plane were nearly shot out of the air in World War II and Korea. I got hit five times in World War II and seven times in Korea, but they, most of them were, were single bullet holes or double bullet holes or just rifle fire. But uh, in World War II, there was one that hit on the leading edge of the F4U that uh, made a spot about a little smaller than a a volleyball, maybe indentation of wing. I never did know what caused it because it wasn't an explosive shell. But uh, in Korea, I got hit several times. In Korea, I got hit seven times, but uh, three of those were with explosive shells. And those were ones that were uh, ones that I was just lucky that they uh, didn't knock the airplane down. One was out on a wing uh, that uh, blew a hole in the, in the wing and sprayed shrapnel all over the cockpit. And I don't know whether we're showing the uh, F9F with a hole in the tail, which uh, was, uh, uh, that was one in which it was about as close as I ever came on that one, because he had, just as I was coming down to, to shoot up in any aircraft position, it was just pulling out from that run, just as this any aircraft from across the valley apparently uh, hit the tail of the airplane and knocked the, the trim out, so I had to hold uh, a lot of pressure on the stick to come back, but it, it still flew okay. But uh, so yeah, there were there were uh, three major hits in Korea, and only one and uh, one that could have been considered big in in, uh, in World War II. But a lot of a lot of planes get those single holes. Eh? We had that happen quite often. But uh, the ones in Korea, the big ones that were explosive shells, those were those were uh, a little different. John Glenn had a famous wingman with him in Korea. Here he talks about who this was and what they did together. You all know who Ted Williams was. Well, at that time they had the uh, lot of recall reservists, of which Ted was one. And he had been uh, trained in World War II right at the end of the war and never got to combat. And, the, uh, and he was back in baseball again. Well, and he had stayed in the reserve and he was reactivated for Korea in the reserve. And uh, they had a policy that the a regular Marine pilot, which I was, would be teamed up with a recalled reservist to sort of make a, a pair. And we went out just about the same time. I went out about a week after he did. But we were uh, assigned then to each other. And it didn't mean you flew every flight together. But uh, if you were on the, the flight schedule for a particular day, you uh, and on the same schedule, well, you, you flew together. And so probably half the missions Ted flew in Korea, he flew as my wingman. So I got to know Ted, uh, Ted pretty well. Uh, he was a good pilot, and uh, he was in—he uh, didn't expect any special treatment, and he didn't get any special treatment. You bet. John finally achieved his goal of being assigned to the Air Force and garnered himself a new nickname that was painted on the side of his jet. Here's John with that story. The Air Force liked to name their airplanes. The Marine Corps and Navy didn't really do that, but the Air Force liked to assign a pilot to a particular plane, and so he got to name that, and that was sort of a custom. And uh, so I had my airplane, uh, the LAD, L-A-D, stood for Lynn, Annie, and Dave, which were my, my uh, wife and son and daughters. Then the, we were up there, and this was getting toward the end of the war. There were rumors that uh, peace talks 
might take place, and I thought the, the war was going to end before I ever had a chance to even get any experience in air-to-air -air combat. And so I was griping and moaning, I guess, a little too much. And one day I came down to the squadron, and they had painted that big mad marine on there for all this. And my initial reaction was to have it taken off, and then I said, what the heck, I'll just fly it that way, and did. And so I took a lot of ribbing because of that. But uh, the air-to-air -air flying was completely different, and that was the idea, was to get some marine pilots with experience in in air-to-air, -air. so if Marines ever needed that, we'd have a few people that were experienced. And when we come back, the life of John Glenn, an extraordinary life, more packed into one life than any three or four of us would ever wish or dream of. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories and our final segment in the life of John Glenn and his talk at the Air and Space Museum about his time spent as an aviator. Here in this story, John tells us about how on one of his missions, he was essentially gliding a dead aircraft 108 miles back to base after one of his men was shot out of the air. John Gerardo was the, uh, my skipper up there. He was a, 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 an Air Force major. And was flying his wing. We were down low uh, and had some trucks on the road, and he was shooting in, and I was right behind him. And he got hit by anti-aircraft fire and knocked out his elevator. And the plane was going up and down in big uh, swings like this. He couldn't control it, and he finally had to get out. And he uh, uh, was down on the ground and, and uh, was, uh, uh, I could see, it was sort of a little scrub oak area or scrub tree area. But I, could, I knew he was all right because I could see the chute being pulled in. He was going to pull in and hide it, uh, which he did. And he, uh, uh, I called for the uh, uh, helicopters to come up from an island offshore, Chodo Island. And they, uh, they radioed back they were on the way. Uh, they never got there, but I stayed as long as I could and, uh, until there was just enough fuel to get back to altitude and glide over our, our lines and uh, did stick back into to uh, K-13, which was our, our field. So it was the only uh, no-power dead stick landing I ever had, and it was about a, the way we calculated, it was about a 108-mile glide getting back. You can't even imagine. And by the way, time and again, John Glenn faced these kinds of torturous, torturous circumstances, as did so many men fighting in World War II up in the air. We just heard a few of Glenn's stories from his early years as an aviator, in another speech he gave at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum back in 2011, Glenn talked about his life as an astronaut. Here, he sets the stage of the early space program and the intense competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. I think people today sort of forget what the, uh, the international situation was back in those days when we were first starting. Uh, the uh, Soviets at that time had been taking thousands of kids into, their, for, into Russia for their education and been uh, sending them back to their countries as indoctrinated little communists. And there was a lot of writing about was communism going to at least be in part of the determining factor for the rest of, the, of, of history. And it was getting a lot of credibility. And they were saying that they were superior to us in, in technology and in research. And to prove this, they were saying, look at their missiles. And their missiles had been orbiting while ours had been blowing up 
too often had been blowing up on the launch pad. So it was in those depths of the Cold War and sort of a comeback that we were, we almost uh, went into some of those early flights as a combat mission because it was that important for our country that, that we not be looked at as a second-rate nation around the world. And uh, so that was one of the driving forces for it. President Kennedy was aware of all this and was very much for the program. And uh, so those were, that was sort of the, the early days. Here, John Glenn talks about the first rocket launch he ever witnessed. It was a launch that became more of an explosion. The uh, first launch any of us saw was pretty interesting. We'd just been in the program a short time, and they had the uh, Mercury Atlas adaptation. They th- thought that was going to be a good, uh, good flight. They took us down because none of us had ever seen a missile launch. And it's going to be a night launch, and we go down there. We're on a camera pad just two or 3,000 feet from the launch site, and... Uh, Starless, I mean, it's a very starry night, and it's, you know, the, the uh, searchlights are on, and, and it's almost like Hollywood, uh, the steam coming off of it. Finally, it comes down 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, it lights up, and we're watching this thing go up and up and up, and it hit the highest area of aerodynamic pressure uh, after about uh, a minute, 59 seconds of launch, and we're watching this thing go up and up, and all at once it blew up right over us. And that was our introduction to the Atlas that we were going <laughs> to ride. And so it was, a, uh, it was quite impressive. As I recall, we looked at each other and wanted to have a meeting with the engineers the next morning. You think? As you can imagine, someone like John Glenn was asked often about what it was like prepping for and blasting off into space. Here, he goes into detail of exactly what that experience was like. People ask quite often, what's it feel like when you're getting ready to launch? And we have a sort of a standard answer in the astronaut corps, and you may have already heard it, but it's uh, how do you think you'd feel if you knew you were on top of two million parts built by the lowest bidder on a government contract? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that bad because you really have, you've studied this thing, you've experimented, you've gone through training, and it's really something you've looked forward to, and it's a time period of great concentration. And uh, you're uh, glad to get going. Lift off off the launch pad after all the training at G, different G levels. I know a lot of people think you're under your maximum stress when you're lifting off the launch pad because of all the fire and the steam and everything going out. It looks bad, but if you think about it, that's the heaviest that the booster. That's the heaviest condition you're going to la- ever be in. And so you're that applied thrust there. You're going to you lift off very gently. Uh, I remember being very amazed at how gentle liftoff. I didn't know for sure until I saw the clock start, and I knew that that was, and that's what I, I said on the, uh, it's on the recording of the flight was uh, the clock is operating, we're underway, and the, uh, and so he's very gentle, but you're accelerating on up. Your launch back at that time was about five and a half minutes from launch pad into orbit, and so you go up. Your outside booster engines come off. And you continue on the sustainer engine. Then that uh, is the one that takes you into uh, takes you into orbit, and that's where you're down to lightweight. And that's the toughest part. Of, that's the hardest part of the of the launch, because you're you're running right up, peaking up to right up to the maximum G's, about 7.7 G's, in that same position again, just as you get into orbit, and then you're cut off, and you go from 7.7 G's to zero. And that's a, a good transition. You really are happy with that. And then the first thing I'm sure uh, I was waiting for at that time was a call from the ground that their radar tracking uh, showed that it was a good orbit and I wasn't going to get cut down and, and, uh, and told to retrofire 
immediately to come down short of Africa uh, because you don't have full orbital speed and so you're going to come down someplace. And the, uh, the maximum that you were prepared to go if you had to at the end of this thing was seven orbits and that's the one that was always used as a, as a signal that you were okay to go for orbit flight, orbital flight was that you're cleared to go for seven and that was the most welcome message just about I'd ever had I think. So the liftoff itself is very gentle but your main part of the uh, is the acceleration up there where you uh, just just as you're inserted into orbit is where you're at their maximum G level. And let's hear some sound from that mission, that famous mission that made John Glenn the first man to orbit the earth. Ignition, liftoff, the MA6 big engines burning clean and hot, pushing the Friendship 7 spacecraft ever faster toward space. Moving toward altitude 100 miles and speed 17,500 miles an hour for a planned space flight that will take Colonel John Glenn around the world in 90 minutes. Trajectory AOK reports Mercury Control. History perhaps being written at this moment here at Cape Canaveral as Project Mercury reaches a climax with its launching operation. And now one minute out. About 10 miles high, speed beginning to pick up into the thousands of miles an hour range in contrail. The nicely has passed through the area of maximum dynamic pressures. Pilot John Glenn is reporting all systems go. And so we heard from John Glenn about what it was like going up into space and how scary that was and what he felt and what the crewmen felt. Now we're going to hear from him what it's like re entering. Earth's atmosphere. The reason you need that kind of speed going around the Earth is basically if you look at it like centrifugal force. If you had something on the end of a string swung around, you feel the force. Well, think of gravity. If you could take a spacecraft up there and just set it up there in space and cut it loose, it would fall toward Earth. Uh, now, if you if you get up to speed though, where it's either the land is dropping away underneath you at the same rate you're going around or look at it as though the, the pull on the spacecraft of gravity is just being equaled by the centrifugal force trying to throw you out the other way, then you're going around and that's the perfect balance that you want to hit. If you go a little faster, you go into a higher, higher orbit. If you go a little slower, you come down and come down in the upper part of the atmosphere. And that's what you do on re-entry. You slow down a little bit and that starts you angling down a little bit. You hit the upper part of the atmosphere and you slow, slow even more and then dig in and come on down. And that's the part where you were on Mercury. We hit about 7.7 Gs coming back in at the end of a flight like that. And then you're falling straight down and you go by about uh, your supersonic until you get down to about uh, 25, 27,000 feet, at which time it's sort of unstable because of the, uh, the, the shock waves and so on. And so you are, are uh, coming straight down and a drogue chute comes out to stabilize it at that time and then when you get down to 10,000 feet uh, the main chute comes out in a reefed condition which just means it's not fully deployed then the reefing is, is cut as, and the, uh, the thing billows out then and you have the, the uh, chute then lets you down the water. You're coming down when you hit the water you're doing about 32 feet per second and uh, it's a good solid impact when you hit the water, but it's quite, quite tolerable. It's not bad at all. 
And so matter of fact, not puffing it up so straight. Straight as an arrow almost. And you'll find that from almost anybody who's a real hero. Um, rarely taking the credit, self-effacing, and in the end, sometimes even self-deprecating. We're celebrating the life of John Glenn. And by the way, there's something about Ohio. We did an hour on Orville and Wilbur Wright, Dayton boys, Moonwalker Neil Armstrong, an Ohio boy, and John Glenn, the four titans of flight, all from the same state and the same country, born within 30 to 40 years of one another. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and when we hear that music, well, that's a cue that it's our final thoughts series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying, and also tributes to loved ones who have passed, a eulogy, a poem, anything and everything that stirs the soul. And we'd love to hear your final thought stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. And record your story there, or leave us your information, and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And this week's Final Thoughts feature is from Tony Dolan. And you likely don't know his name, but you certainly know his work. He was President Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter for his entire eight years. And he was responsible for some of the greatest rhetoric of the 20th century, most notably the Evil Empire speech and the Ash Heap of History speech. But our favorite speech of Tony's was the one he wrote for his dad, Joe, the eulogy for his funeral, which he gave on this day in history in 2009. I wrote about it in National Review, and it got shared with so many people that we called up Tony and said, Tony, would you record this? It's all these years later, but my goodness, I know how close you are to his dad, and I know that on occasions like this when he's not here, well, you got to do what you got to do, and you got to remember him. And what better way to do it, Alex? It, it took Tony over two weeks just to mentally prepare for this. I wanted to record it sooner, and it just took him that long to be able to deliver this touching. Even all, like you were saying, Lee, all these years later, it still hits Tony in that deep way. No, no doubt. It did. My mom passed a few years ago, and I think only now. Am I coming to terms with it? And it's every Mother's Day and it's every Christmas that it really hits me. So all of you who've lost dads, dads who were close, and you know what? Even dads who weren't and you never reconciled. Let's take a listen to Tony Dolan's eulogy. Here's how it started off. My father was generous all his life, and the facts speak to it. In the early 50s, when we lived in Norwalk, even with a young family and at a critical moment in his career, he headed up a fund drive for a new St. Mary's school. It's still there still being used. And then there was his work at St. Vincent's Hospital Foundation, about his two colleagues, Jim Jolly of the phone company and John Sullivan, 
Connecticut's Mr. Democrat, and about their work, the word you heard most often was legendary. Part of the legend, of course, was their age. They were elderly and impressive and also very hard of hearing. The head of their office, Ron Bianchi, said he would have had what he thought a very successful meeting in which he conveyed the administrators and his views about what the foundation should do. And then out in the hallway afterwards, he would hear loud voices. Joe, did you hear what Ron said? John Sullivan would ask Joe Dolan. No, Joe Dolan would answer. Maybe Jim did. Jim, did you hear what Ron said? Jim Jolly would be asked. And Jim would answer, what was that again? How much my father thought of Jim and John and Ron and everybody at the foundation and Mike Daly Fairfield's Medal of Honor winner. How close they all were in those last years. You know, meeting anyone from St. Vincent's was always informative for Joe Dolan's children. Everyone had a story about him, often an amusing one. So many of you at the hospital were special to him, and while I want all of you to know how much he cared for you and how grateful he and his family were that you were in his life, you should know, too, that right to the end he was the same, by which I mean the jokes, especially with the nurses and doctors, even on the night he died. Even on the night he died. And let's continue. Again, this is Tony Dolan's eulogy to his father, Joe Dolan. And this is back in 2009. And again, as Alex had pointed out, it took him a couple of weeks just to get it together, enough to record this all these years later. First, let me say that until two weeks ago, my father had been doing well, going to church every day. But that after his Christmas Eve fall, we were in and out of hospitals. In one emergency room, the 23-year-old nurse was impressed to have a patient just one short year of a century old. My father used his A material. It will sound familiar to some of you. He would be perfectly willing to run off with her, he said, as long as he could be sure she had a lot of money and could take care of him in his old age. A doctor asked him, Mr. Dolan, is there anything I can do for you? How about a million bucks, came the response, the irony. The joke, of course, was that beyond a certain point, money never much mattered to him, except to the extent it helped others. And that was the thing about Joe Dolan and his friends Jim Jolly and John Sullivan, the charm and grace and determination of those three old smoothies as they raised millions to make life better for so many people. Their pictures are in the hospital lobby, quite a tribute and fitting. Yet for all the fundraising my father did and for all the fun he had, some from the hospital remember him for something else. Let me first pause, though, and tell you this. As he got older and we walked together, I would sometimes have to slow down so he could keep up. I am not the first son who has had that experience, but I doubt anyone else ever reflected more on the irony of having to wait for someone who so many times growing up had waited for me kindly, affectionately. Yet, however, things changed in a physical or ambulatory way, as over the years a once superb athlete like my father lost a step or two. Not much else did. It's a wonderful thing to say about a parent. I think my sister Maisel and my brother Terry thought so, too. I mean that we were always learning from him. Right to the end, I always felt I was trying to catch up, and that he was there waiting for me, kindly, affectionately. He was there waiting for me, kindly and affectionately. And so if you're a father listening to this, take heed, learn, listen to the son's affection. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Tony Dolan's remarkable eulogy again 
He was Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter for eight years. And this was his best ever. And again, this was the eulogy Tony Dolan delivered when his father was buried on this day in history in 2009. And we'd love to hear your final thought stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. We'll continue with Tony Dolan's remarkable eulogy for his father Joe after these brief messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final thought series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying, and also tributes to loved ones who have passed. And we return to Tony Dolan and his eulogy to his father, Joe, back in 2009 on this day in history. And again, Ronald Reagan was indebted to this man because he wrote Reagan speeches for eight years, including the tear down this wall speech, one of the greats of all time. And let's pick it up where Tony Dolan left off. The earliest lessons remain the most vivid. Do you recall as a child the confusion caused by the sight of someone who is blind or in a wheelchair or has some other conspicuous disability or hardship in asking about it? My father would explain and the words would follow they always used as a coda to his description of someone else's troubles. The poor fellow. Or the poor girl. The way he said it, the way he made it sound, always for me, all the pathos, the compassion, the feeling humans are capable of in facing our calamitous lives were there in those words. I hear the same words even today, and at the sight of suffering, I hear again my father's voice. And I try to catch up, which is what I mean by his other contribution, the other stories from St. Vincent's. People would tell us that while trying to deal with a relative's illness or their own, and maybe anxiously waiting for word from the doctors, this nice man would come along and talk and listen, and just when they needed it most was touchingly thoughtful. They would always mention how much easier his kindness in the parking passes he always carried made such difficult moments. I wish you could have heard them, though. So much was in their voices. Always it made me think I had much catching up to do. Full disclosure, though, about Joe Dolan means revealing that in one way he was a great trial to his wife and children. Because while my father would greatly inconvenience himself in any noble cause, he also had no compunction about doing that to us. Through six decades of charitable activities... My mother was continually surprised by the causes she found out she had volunteered for, the meetings she had found out she was going to, and the people she found out were coming to her house. Sometimes she would lecture him about it, never with much success. His kids, too, we paid the price. First, though, I have to explain this. Some of you may know that my father was expansive about his children. 
when I went to work in Washington, he pretty much figured that his 33-year-old son was running things down there at the White House with some of Ronald Reagan's advice now and then. Now and then. And you're hearing the humor, the humor that the dad passed along to the son. What a story. Again, Tony Dolan eulogizing his father, Joe, February 12, 2009. Let's continue. One time we were out by the Rose Garden and I was showing him around. As most of you know, golf was a priority with him, and so I made the mistake of pointing out where Ike used to have his putting tee. This called for a closer look, and figuring he had a son in high places, and before I could stop him, he set right off across the garden, triggering every sensor and alarm around. As the Secret Service came pouring out of doorways, I smiled wanely, explained, and tried to salvage my suddenly endangered new career. My mother, by the way, gave him another lecture. He didn't get the point of that one either. Anyway, the next lecture he didn't get the point of was about his dragooning me into do-goodism. In the 80s, Joe Dolan decided the White House mess was really a sort of branch office, or at least a travel and resource center of the St. Vincent's Hospital Foundation. Sometimes I really didn't know whether my job was getting the speeches ready for the next Gorbachev summit or taking hospital staff, donors, and friends to lunch. One week I had 18 people in four different groups. But all this goes back to what I was saying about walking with my father. I used to think that what was important about those years was being with President Reagan. At moments like Evil Empire, Mr. Gorbachev tear down the wall. But my father already knew that just as important was anything done to help St. Vincent's. I know it now. But you see what I mean about taking a while to catch up to him? And Tony Dolan, well, there's nothing more to do but to continue listening to this fantastic eulogy. In his business life, he had been no different. People who worked for him at Sears, he was manager at stores throughout New England, or at Warnicold, told us how good he had been to them. And he was ahead of his time, too. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, he was getting awards from the NAACP. When I asked him about it, he said he was puzzled. All I tried to do was to be fair to people, he said. Though even those who worked for him kidded him, he was originally from Boston. By the way, a slashing fullback, Boston Latin's yearbook said. He studied classics and German at Boston College and been offered a teaching fellowship at the University of Heidelberg, but somehow ended up in retail. So he found life hard in southern Connecticut. He had kept his allegiance to the Red Sox, and the Yankees were there, and his cross. When he was promoted to the Bridgeport Sears, the Norwalk store's display artist did a wonderful sketch of him with a dollar in his pocket and the words, It's not that I need the money, it's just closer to Boston. He took a lot of that same kidding at his club, Brooklawn, though there he was also respected for his prowess at a game that frustrated so many others. At 77, he was Brooklawn's senior flight champion, and even after that, he played a great game for many years, and the golf magazines wrote about him shooting his age or under. Some of those he played with said they had a hard time explaining to their friends and family how they lost that morning's game to a 90-year-old. It would be tough to explain. And I love the fact that he was so humble. You know, winning that NAACP award ended up being a big deal. He was fighting some of the great racial segregation in the North. Not written about much. Northerners like to write about racial injustice in the South as if it didn't occur there. And what does his dad say? All I tried to do was be fair to people. That's it. Let's hear some more from Tony Dolan. 
Some think uh, country clubs are snobbish. My father's friends were self-made. He was close to so many of them, and they to him. They looked out for each other. They were the best of their kind. It was a privilege to see such wonderful fellowship. He owed Brooklawn, too, for happiness, the bliss he found out on the course. And sometimes when you go by, think of him. Say a prayer if you can. On his 90th birthday, the club and Ralph Lestocco gave him a party. And then, and most of all, just a month before my mother died, a storybook finished for them that my sister and I got to see a dinner at Brooklawn in Joe Dolan's honor. Hundreds of people seated at tables along the patio on a Connecticut summer night. As darkness came, they asked him to make a long 12-foot putt. Under a strong spotlight, the 96-year-old gave it his valiant try. No, he, he sunk it. And the cheering, which could be heard down at Jennings Beach, may have done structural damage to the clubhouse roof. You would think he had won the Masters. I was surprised at the shot. My mother wasn't. Joe was always doing things like that, she said. Her hero won last time. Not long after that, when I woke him up one morning with the news she had died and I took him back to the hospital, he kept saying it. Oh, the poor girl. The poor girl. It was how he saw her, a 90-year-old woman and his wife of 65 years, still just the girl he noticed on the street in North Adams, finagled an introduction, proposed a marriage, and created a life with her. More exactly, a way of life. The pagan Joe subculture was one whose beneficent influence their children are grateful for every day, as are so many others. As are so many others. And what a life he created. You can hear it in the son's voice. And again, when Tony was asked to record this eulogy, which he gave all these years back in 2009, it took him a couple of weeks to get it together emotionally to do it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. When we come back, the final portion of this remarkable writing by Tony Dolan, celebrating his late father, Joe. And you can listen to all of our moving final thought stories at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Once again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The final chapter in Tony Dolan's eulogy after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with our Final Thoughts series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying and also tributes to loved ones who have passed. And we return to Tony Dolan and his eulogy to his father, Joe, back in 2009 on this day in history. We left off, and Joe had just lost his bride, his love of his life, and Tony takes it from here. It wasn't easy for him to leave and to go live in McLean, Virginia. He really missed my mother. He missed the hospital. But my sister, who's the heroine and all this, made him happy and gave him that quality of life people talk about. You won't be surprised to know the aides who helped take care of him took his death hard. But it was hardest for my sister, Maisel. She goes by his empty room. Jim Nussel, the former congressman who heads the Office of Management and Budget at the White House where my sister worked, stopped by her desk to express sympathy. Through tears, she said, the tough part is knowing that there isn't anyone on earth anymore who thinks she's perfect. Not missing a beat, Director Nussel quickly said he thought she was perfect. I wonder if he knows how close to right he is. If you want to do something for my father or the family, thank my sister. Through the burdens and joys, she was something. But she's right about him, the way he felt about his kids. At the first Christmas dinner without my beloved brother, Terry, he wept. Got another lecture from my mother, which, of course, had less chance of succeeding than all the others. And here's how Tony Dolan closed out this eulogy to his father, Joe. Since we were children, we called him by his first name to the horror of many of our friends, though we tried to explain that Joe, to us, sounded just like Dad to them. But while his children deeply respected him, and I'll tell you more of why in a second, for all of that, he was also something out of Charles Dickens, one of those endearing figures, coming home from college or our jobs for the holidays. We so looked forward to seeing him. He was our Joe Gargery, our, our tiny Tim's protective father. Our most dependable ally, our oldest friend. Life and time and circumstances being what they are. Someday, it may be 50 or 100 years, change will come to St. Vincent in the lobby. They will take down those pictures of Jim and John and Joe. I've thought about that sometimes and realized that by then, the person taking them down may wonder about the man in those frames. Well, I know what I want that person to know about my father that he's the man his son was always trying to catch up to, especially the night he died. His vital signs, which had plunged earlier, seemed to have stabilized in the ER. But the nurse kept trying to get a blood pressure, and she couldn't. We didn't realize what was happening. What my father did next was what I remember, and brought to mind, forgive me, another parallel, another speaking of English novelist, literary one. Even Waugh is considered by many the best of the 20th century novelists, Brideshead revisited as his masterpiece. At its end, Lord Marchmain comes back to his great house to die in the family he had deserted. Hopes for some sign of a return to the church. With all the mastery of the artist he was, Waugh describes a deathbed scene in which the semi-conscious Marchmain dramatically, tellingly, makes the sign of the cross. Joe Dolan needed no novelist art. No contrivance of genius for his drama. My father, as they tried to get his vital signs, gave them the most important one of all. Slowly, solemnly, he raised a hand and made a perfect sign of the cross. A few minutes later, in a rush of doctors and nurses into the room, 
and he was gone. A better drama, I think, than Mr. Waugh's. The perfect playing out of the plot line. All that has gone before, what's expected of good or high drama. Because unlike poor Marshmi, Joe Dolan had always been there, ever generous to his wife and children, his church, his neighbor. In all that, he'd been strong, manly, dignified, really, living by his code of helping and loving others. So such a good ending, so believable. The man in the picture in St. Vincent's lobby, then, that's who he was. The man I was always trying to catch up to, a man I know that even now is waiting for me, kindly, affectionately. Lord, let thy servant now go in peace. Thy word has been fulfilled, and Lord, help me catch up to him someday. Wow. Not much, not much to say after that, folks. And we wanted to bring you one more final thought story that we found on the Academy of Achievement's terrific podcast, What It Takes. And it was from their fascinating interview with Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And near the end of that talk, Ruth spoke about her husband Marty dying, her lifetime love, her lifelong love, and the surprising thing he left behind for her. And the surprising thing he left behind for her. Here's Ginsburg. I found this letter in the drawer of the stand next to Marty's bed in the hospital. When we knew it was the end and I was taking him home so that he could die at home rather than in the hospital, um, I was just checking to see that we had everything he brought with him. And on a yellow pad, there was a letter to me. And it reads, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56. It was nearly 60 years. We were married for 56 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life. And consider on balance, the time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. And just sign Marty. Just sign Marty. And you can hear her breaking up. And we love to do these things. Interestingly enough, we did an hour on Justice Scalia's funeral and all the eulogies that were involved there, and it was a terrific final thoughts. 
and Scalia and Ginsburg, though they thought very differently about a whole lot of things, came together in the most important way that matters most, and that's friendship. And the two loved each other. They played cards together. They did all kinds of things together. They enjoyed each other's company. Final thoughts. We love this segment. It, it almost always makes us cry, but a good kind, not the bad kind. This is Our American Stories, Tony Dolan's story about his dad, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her final thoughts, or her husband's final thoughts, shared by her with an audience that I don't think was expecting this. This is Our American Stories. Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History series. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. They now have 16 terrific courses available online for you to take alone with your family. And it covers everything from the Constitution to the Federalist Papers. There's a great course on economics, it's on free market economics. It's fabulous. And of course, one of their latest entries, the course on C.S. Lewis. It's just incredible. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of that. And this day in history, today's version, well, it's centered around a man we've spent quite a bit of time on, and it's Henry Ford. We did it this day in history on the world's first moving assembly line. And that's what Ford really did. He didn't invent the automobile. He just brought it to the American public. He brought the prices down. By the, way, by the way, he also brought wages up. Remarkable. By the way, that's what free market capitalism and innovation can do. It can change the world. Well, for this particular day, what a story. The oldest vehicle in the Motorsports Hall of Fame is the famous Henry Ford 999 Racer from 1902. Although it is not the first car race car ever built, it is certainly the first car to rise to the status of legend. The car is equipped with only one seat, and the mechanic was often kept busy oiling bearings and making adjustments while the car was being driven. The role more closely resembled that of an active sidecar acrobat than that of a riding mechanic. 
Here is the story behind Henry Ford's land speed record. What's next? Big things. Things you never saw coming. So buckle your tool belt. Here comes the all-new Ford F-150. The first and only pickup that lets you do this. And this. And this. All wrapped in a high-strength, military-grade aluminum alloy body so you can do the most of this. The all-new Ford F-150. The future of tough. Ford Motor Company made history on this day. And I'm not talking about its F-150 being named Truck of the Year at the North American International Auto Show. Some groundbreaking features available on the new F-150 include integrated loading ramps for easy loading of motorcycles and ATVs, and a 360-degree camera view that creates a bird's-eye view of what's around the vehicle. Today marks the day in 1904 when founder Henry Ford personally set a new land speed record of 91.37 miles per hour. The record was set with a four-wheel vehicle, dubbed the 999, on a frozen ice track that was carved into Lake St. Clair in New Baltimore, Michigan. The 999 was named after the Empire State Express number 999, which was an American steam locomotive that famously set a world speed record of 112.5 miles per hour in 1893. making it the first man-made vehicle to exceed 100 miles per hour under its own propulsion. Henry Ford collaborated with cycling champion Tom Cooper and a team of several assistants to create the vehicle in 1902. It ran on a 50 horsepower, 18.8 liter four-cylinder engine with a wooden chassis, though there was no body or hood. There really hasn't been much changes to the internal combustion motor. The valve goes open, the fuel and air comes in, and the spark plug fires off and it blows up, you know. They've made it more efficient, but nothing has changed. Air goes in, air goes out. There was also no rear suspension, and the steering was controlled by a crude pivoting metal bar, similar to a straight handlebar on a mountain bike, but with upright hand grips at the ends to operate it. The total cost of the project was $5,000. Ford's great-grandson, Bill Ford Jr., the company's executive chairman, recently reflected on the speed record during an appearance on WJR 760 with Paul W. Smith and expressed pride in his family's dedication to the auto industry. On this day, your great-grandfather, Henry Ford, set the speed record. Did you know that? I did know that. This is the day in 1904, Henry Ford set a land speed record of 91.37 miles per hour on the frozen surface of Michigan's Lake St. Clair. I have a feeling that whatever you announce later, it will go a little bit faster than 91 miles per hour. It might, but I'll tell you, it's within that same spirit. I mean, we were born on a racetrack, our company was. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, performance has always been a big deal for us. This uh, automobile will probably not be dubbed the 999, but you never know, because you know the day and the history. I do. I do believe it will not have a wooden chassis. I do not believe that it will be without a hood. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that uh, this time of year on Lake St. Clair? With, <laughs> no! Uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, most of the land speed records right up to World War II were set on Lake St. Clair. That was the, the venue of choice. No kidding. Yeah. I did not know that. Henry Ford traveled one mile in 39.4 seconds for the record. But it was broken within a month at Ormond Beach, Florida, 
by a driver named William K. Vanderbilt. Even so, the publicity surrounding Ford's achievement was valuable to the auto pioneer, who in June of the previous year had incorporated the Ford Motor Company, which would eventually go on to become one of America's big three automakers. Henry Ford's land speed record. This day in history. And by the way, Popular Mechanics rates Henry Ford's 999 record in their top 10 list of land speed records because, as they say, quote, remaining in the record books was not the goal, but the precedent it set in the world of automotive ingenuity. It cannot be understated. And now it's time for our favorite, favorite segment from Professor Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the sociology department at City College, his daydream segment. Let's take a listen to the disclaimer. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. And here's the daydream. While I am not a political reporter, I have, for some reason, been assigned to cover a major political meeting. Not only is President-elect Andrew Green present, I am, I'm somehow find myself alone in a room with him shortly uh, before the meetings are to begin. It turns out that my worries about what kind of chit-chat I am to make with the man who is soon to be president of the United States um, were unnecessary, because the president-elect asks me, to my astonishment, whether I have uh, any suggestions for him. What? I'm going to give advice to the soon-to-be president of the United States? What do I do now? What else can I do? Give it a shot. So I say to the president, Mr. President, my knowledge of politics is infinitesimal, but another thought occurs to me. Every president is, of course, um, a human being and vulnerable to all the flaws and faults that other human beings are vulnerable to. Now, it occurs to me that the flaw to which a president might be most vulnerable is that it could go to his head. Uh, he is, after all, the President of the United States. So uh, might I be bold enough to offer a possible um, uh, defense against uh, you are inadvertently letting your position have this effect? Pretend you're about to be uh, on a TV show about five randomly selected people discussing uh, their jobs, and randomness being what it is, Uh, You have been chosen as one of the selected. You are beside yourself with excitement and anticipation. Boy, am I going to look good. You're thinking, after all, I am the Mr. Number One, the top of the heap. I I guess I'm going to look pretty, pretty good compared to whoever else they happen to uh, manage to come to the show. Stage manager says, five, four, three, two, one. We're on. At this point, you, president-elect, are beside yourself with, with self-satisfaction. 
this is going to be so great, you're thinking. After all, I am el hombre popular numero uno. And just to think, it's all so well-deserved. I've got to admit, I feel uh, a bit uh, uh, sorry uh, for all those uh, other people um, uh, having to be compared to me, the moderator. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have a very interesting show about people and uh, their work. And without further ado, um, to, to our first guest, Mr. Duffy. Mr. Duffy. Well, um, my uh, name is Timothy Duffy. Uh, I'm a fireman. Um, and running into burning buildings to save people is my business. Moderator. Thanks very much. And now to our second guest, Mr. Green. Mr. Green. Um, well, um, uh, well, my, my name is uh, Andrew Green, and uh, I have an office job. This is Our American Stories. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of sociology, department head at City College. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 